Hello, welcome everybody. Thank you so much to our three rabbis who we respect so much for being here today, Rabbi Simon Jacobson, Rabbi Manus Friedman, and Rabbi Shace Taub. Thank you to Amudim for bringing us here today to do this panel. And thank you to my podcast partner, Ida Schottenstein, for doing this together with me. We have three rabbis here today. <laughs> um, and we may have three opinions, but you can have two opinions. And the third element is the, is the part that's infinity. That's the part that understands that both can be right. And so we'll see who, who the infinity is here today. <laughs> but what we want to bring to the table is infinity, that everyone here who is sitting here and listening to the podcast can tap into infinity, into our essence, and really come to a place of um, hearing different perspectives and also understanding that all perspectives can be truth. Welcome. And we'd actually like to address the first question to Rabbi Chase Taub. We had you on our podcast to discuss parenting. Our first question we really wanted to ask you about is um, trauma, because first of all, Amudim is, has a, is a lot about uh, dealing with trauma. And um, essentially, once we address our own traumas, we are better suited to raise healthy families and live healthier lives. And Ida and I feel that we are lucky to live in a time when it has become more mainstream to become vulnerable and address traumas. But then at the same time, there is a conflicting notion of stop talking about traumas already because we get stuck in our own traumas. And we want to know how do we address trauma in a way that doesn't involve blaming and um, alienating our loved ones and destroying families, but yet being able to address it in a healthy way where we, we, we can grow as human beings. Before I start, I just want to make a disclaimer that uh, trauma is a, a clinical term. And when I'm speaking, I'm speaking as a rabbi. Those are, my only qualification is I'm a rabbi. I, 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 I want to be careful that no one misunderstands that I'm trying to overstep my boundaries and make any statements that have clinical uh, implications because that's I'm not a mental health professional I don't have that training and so I just want to be very careful everyone understands um, I'm staying in my lane um, so maybe I won't even use the word trauma I'll just I'll use uh, I'll use a maybe a longer term which is stuff happens to people that affects them uh, a lot of times this happens during childhood a lot of times it happens either with family or around family. And I guess what you're asking, I think what you're asking is, um, <laughs> how much did our parents really ruin our lives? Right, that's basically <laughs> it in a nutshell. Okay. And, and, and the reality is, nobody emerges from childhood unscathed. We all get a little bit damaged. That's the reality. Some more, some less. But your question was more about like what to do with that reality in a way, I'm going to rephrase your question because in a way that honors the fact that people have been hurt as children and at the same time that doesn't turn that into a life script where, oh, because of this, now I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm incapable of, of, of living the life I would have lived had that thing never happened to me. Yeah. Basically, That's did it. I get the question? Yes, you oh, did. Thank God. Okay. 
so I said I'm answering as a rabbi, and this is a very rabbi answer. And that is the only way to really, to my thinking, to really properly process this truth and honor this truth, but yet to move on from it, is through faith in God. Is to look at your life as written by the divine author. Nothing happened to you that wasn't under his domain and his loving wisdom and and care. And even though a lot of it can even be horrific, and from our perspective, we can't process it, and we're not justifying it, and we're not excusing it, and all the standard disclaimers. But for the person himself or herself, I think it's very, very important to realize your parents didn't mess you up. Whatever life you had, whatever childhood you had, whatever experiences you had, that was your journey. Some of it was hurtful. Some of it caused some breakage, which you have to heal from. But ultimately, my life is not some imagined ideal life that could have happened, should have happened, if such and such would have never occurred. That, that's, that's not reality. The, your life, your perfect story, your perfectly imperfect story is whatever happened with all the, the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything else. So I really believe that the healthy way to start to process this stuff is for each person to sort of embrace the godliness of their own personal story, to use the real technical Hasidic term, the hashkoch protes of it, that Hashem is specifically engineering and orchestrated the details of our lives. And when you can start to see the, the divine authorship, I think you can honor the reality of what happened, but also become, uh, become strengthened by it, rather than defined by it. Yeah, that, that, that I, I speaks to me. True. That speaks to me, yes. <laughs> Does it speak to you, Ida? It does, embracing a reality. So we also wanted um, Rabbi Friedman to elaborate, because we've got many messages after the episode about this particular thing that you had shared, was that, in a nutshell, if someone is going to the, down the chuppah and they feel unsure, then they should probably call it off, because call off the, uh, going, calling off the engagement, because usually that kind of scenario leads to a difficult or a, um, a lot of trying times in the relationship. So my thought was, first of all, it was refreshing to hear that for somebody who should really call off the engagement. But at the same time, there are many people who will go out and um, date, and they're always going to be unsure, no matter who they marry. And there are also some people that you'll hear them say that they went down to the chuppah unsure, and then they they became very happy. They have a very happy relationship. So how does one know? How, is, how, does one, how does one use that motivation and dedication in the right way to know that they're marrying the right person if perhaps they are unsure? Well, first of all, there's unsure and there's unsure. Are you unsure about marriage or are you unsure about your spouse? If you're unsure about marriage, you'll get over it, you'll settle down, and you'll be fine. But if there's something about your spouse that you're unsure of, this is going to be trouble. Well, I guess the question is, what is it that you're unsure about? Maybe that's what it is, but 
sometimes you can be unsure about something and you evolve and you, you don't really know yourself what you want. But this is the process. I mean, it, it could happen, right? The process of getting married, the process of dating is eliminating all problems and obstacles. It's a process of elimination. It's not falling in love. It's not becoming impressed. It's removing or discovering that you have no obstacles. There's nothing going to get between you because everything's good. But I just can I pause right there? In life, there are many obstacles. After you're married. Yes. But when you're getting married, you should see no obstacles. Anyone who walks under the chuppah thinking, well, I'll have to handle or I'll have to tolerate, not a good idea. And don't wait until you're, until you're under the chuppah. To... <laughs> That's the point of going out. The point of dating is to make sure that there is nothing about the other person that disturbs me. And what about if the person doesn't see, oh, I'll have to handle this, or, but it's more like I don't feel that spark that I want to feel? That, that's negotiable. Could be you're too nervous to feel the spark, you're not close enough, you're still a little awkward with each other. In other words, it's not what you do have that is important, it's what you don't. You don't, you're not uncomfortable with each other's presence, you're not uncomfortable with each other's thinking, you're not uncomfortable with each other's looks. There's nothing making me uncomfortable. Does That's this need to be like an ongoing thing? Meaning there's this whole notion of don't make a permanent decision based on a temporary emotion. So let's say one day, you know, someone's feeling like this is the right, this is my Bashart, and then on another day they are having doubts, but then they kind they're kind of wishy-washy. Um does, does the same rule apply? Once you're married? Before. Before. Yeah. There we'll get to be, once you're married. <laughs> yeah. There should be no doubts before. None. Not even when you haven't had wow. coffee yet and you're not having a good day and you're okay. Do, do you, um, Rabbi Taub, uh, Rabbi, we'll start with Rabbi Jacobson. Do you, um, do you feel the same way? Not necessarily um, because... What happens if it's a trivial thing? You know, uh, you went on the first date and you liked everything about it, or the second date, but the way when she smiles, there's a certain twitch. And then when you walk into the chuppah, you suddenly remember that twitch. I I'm not sure if Rabbi Friedman would say, okay, call it off. Would you? Absolutely. <laughs> That's what I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> so finally, we disagree. It, it may be a little too late, yeah. <laughs> but that shouldn't have happened. Yeah, you had said on the podcast, if you don't like a freckle, don't. You said if you don't like the other person's freckles, don't marry maybe them. Maybe that's why the color <laughs> comes in the face. Maybe. <laughs> he, said, he said what? Maybe that's where the color comes Oh, <laughs> that's interesting. It's going to be the last minute. minute. <laughs> the person says, there's something that bothers me about him, but it's so trivial, I'm embarrassed. Well, don't be embarrassed. You're trivial. Trivial things bother you because you're trivial. Yeah, but that person can grow out of. They can maybe, or it'll bother you more once you're married and stuck Look, with I, this. I don't know if this is the place to debate the issue. I'm sure there's a lot more to be said because the fact is that the Rebbe, for example, was very opposed to people breaking engagements, even though halachically and technically it's not as bad as divorce. But the, so we have to discuss why. You know, why is that? Did the and rapper ever write why? 
my understanding, I don't remember if I saw exact reason, was because in a way it's like you've given your word. So it's not a halachic obligation to stay engaged, but if you start breaking your word, it's a very, uh, disturbs the whole element of trust and stuff like that. And of course the Rebbe didn't want to have also a situation where where people just, okay, you know what, we were engaged and uh, tomorrow we're not. Um, but it, I think it comes down to case by case. I don't think you can, um, I mean, I, 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 am, I know Rabbi Freeman quite well. I don't think he's stating a blanket statement, everything. You have to know what you're discussing. Are you stating a blanket statement? What, what I'm saying is don't let it get to that. I'm not saying when to break off a, an engagement or a marriage. Avoid that. If you know what you're looking for and you know what you, who you are, it won't come to that. Why did you get engaged if this bothers you? By the way, you shared if you know who you are. And often, I mean, you even shared it on our podcast that you said it's a healthy thing to get married young. Like you highly recommend that. Now, when you're really young, you don't necessarily know who you are. Actually, you don't really know who you are. You, truth is, you only really know, get to know who you are once you're married and you're sharing a life with somebody. So how are you meant to know who Maybe you that's are? not young enough. That's <laughs> one. You're too old. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know yourself at the time. Of course, you're going to grow, you're going to mature, but you got to know where you're standing now. The question I would pose is, what do you do with all the people who don't know? And sometimes their priorities are off. That's even right. in the dating process, let's not even talk about going to the chuppah. In the dating process, what they think is important is not really that right. important than other things are. So very often the things that are bothering them shouldn't even bother them, but they are bothering them. Right. So what if the conflict is, you know, Rabbi Friedman, you had mentioned it doesn't have to be good for you, it just has to be you um, in a, in, when we had spoken about this. And so how do you balance, let's say a person does know this person is for them, but their parents are against it and the parents are saying, no, this person is not for you. Um, is that considered a grounds for breaking it off because that's an obstacle, like the parent not being okay with it? That's a whole nother subject, but yeah. Is that an obstacle? She's saying someone's walking to the chuppah and they remind themselves that their mother right. may not like the cow. He's not coming to the wedding. <laughs> she's at the wedding, but she's not yeah. so happy. <laughs> well, they, they want to marry this person, but the parent is so very You have to choose. Are you marrying your mother or your uh, bride? Right. 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 Well, here the Rebbe's instruction was parents should not get in the way of a couple that who already decided to get married. You can give advice during the process, but if they decided they want to marry each other, stay out of the way. Well, this was actually one of our questions in the, today's generation. Children have, have more free reign. We, we, we're, you know, we have a different approach today. We, we're, we're here to fulfill our children's needs. I mean, that's one of the approaches. And that um, we've we got to be more understanding of, the, of them. It's their story, not ours. Rabbi Shays Talpert said that, like, this is not our story. This is their story. At the same time, don't you think sometimes we need some gvura to be, you know, we have to have the chesed, but sometimes we need some discipline to be and, and to share with our children, this might not be right for you, what you're doing, whether it's marriage or whether it's something else. And how do we go about that? Parents should offer their opinion. Children should seriously consider their parents' opinion before they come to the decision. Once they've made the decision they want to marry each other, you can't, you can't toy with that. Dangerous. In general, Rabbi Taub, um, giving what do you feel about 
parents giving opinions to children in general yeah in general in general i could make it even more general than parenting i could make it i could make it about life okay yeah in general and say it's probably not going to be effective to give unsolicited advice ever so here's the trick if you have an opinion that you think might be useful for somebody to hear the whole trick is to get them interested in coming to you and asking for your for your opinion so to me it's not so much about well how should you give your opinion to your child or to anyone for that matter yeah, it could be to your husband could be to husband, your husband it could be a friend a sister a brother your neighbor <laughs> it's about how do i establish a rapport a context within which this person is going to seek out and actually be interested in what I have to say. So most of the work of getting our children to actually hear our advice and consider our advice is about building the relationship. <laughs> if your child feels bonded to you, if they trust you, if they respect you, if you spend time with them, it's almost automatic, meaning I don't like to use the word effortless because then people feel guilty and they, they feel like it, they judge themselves and it should be completely uh, without any deliberate uh, effort, but almost effortless. I'll say almost. It, it's just natural. It's a natural thing. When, when a parent is bonded to a child, the child is bonded to a parent, it's a natural thing. The parent is more experienced. The parent has been given a job by God to parent the child. It's a natural thing. The parent is sharing wisdom. The child is listening to it. But if you have to chase someone down and say, by the way, I'm the parent, you're the child, here's a few things I want to tell you. You already lost. Like, Imagine somebody, well, you don't have to imagine, Like people stand up in the subway and start preaching. How many people are moved by that? Right? Like, <laughs> you have to attract your audience. That's why at like every Chabad house, what do you do? Come over, have some, have a meal, have some chicken soup, <laughs> say l'chaim, we'll sing a song. And then when everyone's calm and they decide they're safe and they like you, oh, here's the Dvar Torah. 30 seconds, you know, get in, get out. But I've said this many times, and I'll say it again. It's not my original quote. I think it's Teddy Roosevelt, actually. But people don't care what you know until they know that you care. We love that one. We yeah, use it and all it's the time a, it's a great one. It's just, <laughs> I think even you shared it too, right? Yeah. It's a, whatever, it's an old quote. Yeah. But the point is, it's true. It's, un, it's unavoidable. You cannot escape this. So to answer your question again, parents giving advice to children. Yeah, great. But that means if your child is 100% certain that you are caring, you are safe, you are trustworthy, then it's going to naturally happen that you're going to be able to give them guidance and input. Sometimes, I mean, you say natural, sometimes it can be tough and you can have a really good relationship with your child because of outside influences, like children with yeah, their friends. Yeah, but, but that's what you're competing with. I, I, I don't want to scare anyone, but when I talk about parents bonding with children, I don't want to say it in a scary way because we should do it just because it's the right thing, not because we're... We're afraid of what could happen if we don't. But fine, let me say it since you brought it up. 
if you're not the person that your child comes to to share news with, to process events of their life with, to talk about their day with, to just check in about reality, if you're not that person. So there's, there's only two other possibilities. One is they don't have anyone in their life like that, which means they're terribly alone, which is a disaster. Or it means they found someone or think they found someone who fills that role, and you don't get to pick who that person is or what values that person has. The healthiest thing is that a parent should be that person. Or at least, let me, let me, let me rephrase that. The parent should be the first person in their child's life who plays that role. And then as your child grows and has a healthy model for what a trustworthy person is, they, God willing, they'll find other people. They'll find a best friend. They'll find, God willing, their spouse. Will, they'll have that level of trust in their spouse. Um, but it, it, it's really, it's about the relationship. If there's a connection, then advice and guidance is, is natural. It's, 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 it's easy. And if there is no connection, then you can have all the great speeches in the world. And you can be right. But It's another way of saying last night, Eden and I went to the Ahel, and when we came in, the rebel was talking about when you have a relationship with someone, he was actually talking about our leadership roles. Mm -hmm. And as it's a like lead, the video that plays. Yeah, the video, the yeah. gem video. When you come into the Ahel, there's a gem video. It was actually when we came out. When we came out of the Ahel, the rebel was talking about leaders and that the first thing to do is to be kind and have compassion when you're sharing. And after that, you can give rebuke. The translation was rebuke. There you go. So first comes, like you're saying, yeah. the bonding and the connection and the caring, and then you can do it. You're saying if they come to you to ask for it. Is that what you're saying? But there's something about marriage that is a little bit different. Every parent knows that they have a vested personal interest in how their children are going to, what their children are going to be. I want you to be a certain kind of person, so I want you to marry a certain kind of person, but you're not that kind of person. Yeah. So on the parents' part, it's a little selfish. It's what I want. So they have to be careful. Are they giving advice or are they manipulating? Right. So it becomes very like al-tam voreach. You can't tell a person what they love, what they're comfortable with, they either are or they're not. So there's got to be a little bit of independence or distance where you got to let the kid be who he or she is and not try to make them into your image. So all the great advice, but in marriage, parents and children, I think they're looking for different things. So parents have to be a little uh, cautious on that one. The problem arises when a parent thinks it's not manipulation and they think it's advice. Right. <laughs> they think it's the best thing for my child and my child doesn't know. And the parent convinces themselves that they're absolutely, they don't even realize that they're imposing. And then when, how do you distinguish when you do see your child doing something that you would disagree with, but the child may have to learn on their own. We're not talking about a five-year-old. We're talking about an adult. And that's why a, a concept of a rav and a mashpia sometimes plays a role that a parent cannot play because a parent is too close for comfort. Just throw, since we're in the topic, just throwing in another uh, qualification. I mean, the Rebbe says there has to be amshachas halev. It's not good if there isn't. But when there is, you got to respect it. That you Can you don't, translate amshachas halev? Uh, an attraction. Uh, drawn. 
once that attraction is there, you can't argue with it. You can't say it's a good idea, not a good idea. It's not an idea. Well, you said there's a difference between attraction and infatuation. Yeah. Maybe you can define for us, because you have your book, Creating a Life That Matters. Maybe you can share with us the difference and what love is. Ooh. <laughs> or what love is not. Yeah. What love is and what, what, what it's good for, what it's not good what for. What is love? Yeah. I think a more important word than love, which is overused and, and lost all meaning by now, vulnerability, right? I, somebody mentioned, we already talked about vulnerability. The purpose for marriage, which I think everybody should know before they get married, the purpose of marriage is to not be alone, right? That's what it says. God says, I'm going to create you a helpmate because it's not good to be alone. What's not good about it? What's wrong with being alone? If you're, if you're self-sufficient, why not be alone? It's much easier. <laughs> I joke about this, but Torah says it's not good to be alone. Every human being in the world says, leave me alone. <laughs> so is it good or is it not good? Vulnerability means I am not enough. It doesn't mean I can be hurt. That's the weakness of vulnerability. The beauty of vulnerability is I am not enough. I am self-sufficient. I can do well by myself. I don't need any help, but I am not enough. That is the ultimate vulnerability. And that's what it means. It's not good to be alone. Because being alone is not enough, no matter how perfect you are. I mean, God himself doesn't want to be alone, no matter how perfect he is. Because goodness begins when there is someone else. So being perfect, self-sufficient, almighty, all-powerful, that's functional. There's nothing good about it. Where's goodness? Goodness begins when there's somebody else. And that's because we were not created for ourselves. If we don't teach our children this, maybe they shouldn't even try to get married. Because if you don't understand this, when you talk about bittle or humility or selflessness, this is what we're talking about. It's not about you. Nothing. You have love. You're capable of loving. What does pop psychology say? Love yourself. Wrong. Love, you don't have love for yourself. Just like you don't have the power of speech and communication to talk to yourself. It's not for you. Whatever you have is not for you. We have to teach children this at a very young age. And by example. I mean, it could be a slippery slope because then you have, uh, you know, codependency, which can often result in, you know, behaviors that can undermine a person's growth. So how do you, it's interesting because there is this whole notion of independence, you know, like togetherness, but also being apart and balancing the two. Um, and then having self-love, I guess it may be a different kind of self-love, more like a humility so how do you 
How do you balance? Self-love is a given. The question is, what's it for? Why do I have self-love? To give it away. Not to keep it. Just like these people who are worth $200 billion. What are they supposed to do with that? Keep it? It's, it's ridiculous. It's so obviously not for you, even though it is yours legally, according to Torah. It's yours. But who says it's for you? You have right. information. What, it's for you? Of course not. So this whole idea that it's not good to be alone means it's not good to live for you. It's not a life. It's just an existence. Life begins when there's someone else. And that's how you define love. That's how you define marriage. right? So that is the ultimate vulnerability. Now, it would be nice if the person you're married to is a little lovable. It wouldn't hurt. <laughs> it wouldn't hurt. Yeah, makes it a little smoother, a little more. But the main thing is you can't be alone because you're not enough for yourself. If you feel like you're enough, don't marry anybody. Don't impose yourself on somebody else. You can live with another person when you feel and know that you're not enough. Then there's room for another person. Then there's respect for the other person. Love can be very, uh, what is the word, controlling, consuming. You swallow up the other person. Don't let them breathe because you love them so much. Love can be toxic. Vulnerability is never toxic. So you're saying in a relationship, vulnerability is the focus more than love. Yes. And the immediate byproduct of vulnerability is respect. The other person is significant to you, not just lovable. It's a, a message that um, would be good for everyone to hear today. You know, we, we were recently in Dubai. We were brought out to um, sing and speak for, uh, there were 100 widows brought out from Israel, and we did an event there. And the topic that we spoke about were women throughout our, throughout our history and how we're inspired by them. And Ida and I noticed with each woman that we shared about, which were our matriarchs and Rebetz and Hannah and some others, that they went through very trying times, and sometimes it was a whole lifetime. How can we take the past generations, their Kabbalah soul that they had, and I know because I did 30 letters, 30 days with Rabbi Shaste Taub, and one of the letters the Rebbe shared that we all have the past generations within us today. But how, we can know that, but how do we really apply it practically in today's world. I think that people often associate Kabbalists all with subservience, you know, the way things were in the, in the 50s and 60s where, you know, women today feel like, oh, we, we don't want to be that person. We want to express ourselves and yeah. have our voices heard. Look, it's a pretty simple equation. People who are highly motivated do tremendously impressive things. They're, they're able to dedicate themselves to a cause. So then the answer is, we need to provide more motivation. Which is, by the way, I, I assume the, 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 the purpose of something like this. Why are we doing this podcast forum? Are we having a discussion about ideas that are 
important to people in in their day-to-day lives. Why are we discussing this? Because we're trying to explain things to people in a format that is digestible, in a format that, that they will appreciate, where they can think about some things a little bit more deeply. And we're trying to change the way they... They, they see their lives, how they see relationships, parenting, marriage, whatever it is. And once that clicks and they say, oh, I never appreciated that before. I never recognized that. Oh, that's a new, that's a new idea for me. Then th- that, there's your motivation. And then they can do selfless things. Then they can put themselves aside for a greater cause because they understand that there is a greater cause. But running into a room and saying, everybody, there's a greater cause. Everybody, you know, jump on the floor. What what what? It, you, you can't just bark things at me that I that I don't understand. I, now, going back to what I was saying before about trust, about a relationship, there are some people who have earned the right. If they walk in the room and they say to me, "Jump up, jump down, jump out the window," I'll do it because they don't have to explain to me what the greater cause is. If he says there's a cause, he's got me. He he can explain later if and when he he chooses to. Okay, but that's because of the relationship. That's the context. So there's the trust there already. But I think uh, by and large today, actually I I should say, so basically I think there's two jobs that we need to do. One is to win people's trust. God forbid never to break their trust. Uh, That's why compassion is so important today. Um, So easy. So easy to cause somebody ideological problems by emotionally disappointing them. <laughs> Think about that. And, and people don't like to hear that because they, they feel it's, it's patronizing. It's like calling into question the validity of their ideological quandaries. But we're all human. And, and the reality is, if someone had just fe- felt a little bit more safe, a little bit more seen, they probably wouldn't have come to their, uh, their, their quandary they probably would have worked things out or, or tabled it for a while until, the, until they could work it out. So one thing is, which is huge is to make people feel secure. That like, I'll just speak about rabbis because I am one. Like People have to feel a rabbi is a safe person. Emotionally, emotionally safe. You want to talk about parenting. Children have to feel a parent is a safe person. I, I said this uh, in, in, a, in a talk somewhere and then uh, people... Uh, I heard, I just said it because I, re- I repeated it. I heard somebody say it, and, I, and, and then I, I get so much feedback about it. I said, I heard a father say, when my kid grows up and gets in trouble, I don't want her to say, oh my God, my, my dad's going to kill me. I want her to say, oh my God, I got to call my dad. And everyone's like, yeah, that's it, that's it. Okay, so whether you're a parent, you're a rabbi, you're a, you're a teacher, you're a community leader, everyone's a community leader in some capacity. Win people's trust. Show them that you're safe. Show them that you're reliable. And God forbid, don't expose them, shame them, call them out. I mean, that's just so counterproductive to any type of education. Okay, that's one thing. And then the other thing is that once there is that buy-in, call it buy-in, so then you have, an op- you have an opportunity. You have a platform. Someone's giving you a platform. So explain to them what there is to be excited about. And if you explain to them what there is to be excited about, they'll do incredible things. They'll be very dedicated, I think. I just want to say the Knesset Shluchim mm-hmm. was recently. The Deb is a primary example of that. Took a generation of people who, this is, this is, this is 
current. These are people from today. And a lot of these shlokim are young people, millennials, okay? But when there's the trust, and there's a clear articulation of the greater purpose, you can get people to do amazing things. And, 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 and you look at the Kinesah Shluchim, and there's your proof. And there's so many crises going on everywhere with mental health crisis. We have a you know, marriage crisis with the divorce rate going up, and parents and children are not getting along. There's a lot of division. And um, you know, this, whole, this, this quote, don't be so busy mopping the floor that you don't think to turn off the faucet. So if we're now assuming we're busy mopping floors everywhere, and the water just keeps running. What is the equivalent? Like, what is? And I'd love to hear from each of you. What is the equivalent of that faucet just running? What is, What do we need to um, address or resolve that can help with all the surface stuff that we're dealing with? I mean, there's so many crises going on everywhere with m- mental health crisis. We have a you know marriage crisis with the divorce rate going up, and parents and children are not getting along. There's a lot of division. And, um, you know, this whole, this, this quote, don't be so busy mopping the floor that you don't think to turn off the faucet. So if we're now assuming we're busy mopping floors everywhere and the water just keeps running, what is the equivalent? Like what is, and I'd love to hear from each of you, what is the equivalent of that faucet just running? What, what do we need to, um, address or resolve that can help with all the surface stuff that we're dealing with that's well i don't know if i really would say this any other time but in context i'll say breach of trust is the faucet turning off the faucet means restoring trust i would add to uh, what uh, rabbi tab and what rabbi friedman said earlier um just to take it to the next level not being alone or the, the, the converse of that is being attached, being connected to the right things. So there's a lot of talk today about attachment disorder. You know, we all not only thrive, our very essence is about attachment. In Hebrew, ava and echad, same gematria. So love and being united with something is one. Nine months in our mother's womb we spend, Completely attached, completely vulnerable on one hand, but totally nurtured, submerged, loved, protected, sheltered in every possible way. In a healthy home, when the child is born, so even though the umbilical cord has been cut, but the attachment continues. The child is cradled, nursed, loved, again, protected in all and we don't even know, even scientifically, what, what that achieves. We only know it when we don't have it. When you say a child ripped away, God forbid, from a parent very young, that child will never be the same. Adopted children, or if something, God forbid, traumatic happens in pregnancy. You know, once upon, they thought that children were deaf, blind, and mute, and nothing affected them. Now we know it's the exact opposite. So healthy attachments will create healthy attachments. So as you grow older... You've been given the security, you've been validated, you've been loved, so you have a, there's self-respect. You know, I'm talking about the best case scenario. Confidence. So now, when the time comes to leave the nest, you have the confidence to spread your wings and build your own nest. And you won't bring all your phobia and neurosis and phobias and fears and insecurities 
and inhibitions into the new relationships. Again, I'm talking best case scenario. Take away healthy attachment. That doesn't mean the person doesn't need attachment. It just means that they don't know where to find it. So they're going to find it elsewhere. They'll find it sometimes in neutral places, but very often in destructive places. What do you think an addiction is? An addiction at the end of the day is an unhealthy attachment. You know, someone that is uh, mediocre will have mediocre addictions. Someone who's passionate is going to have passionate addictions because you're desperately looking to fill a void. You're thirsty, you're hungry. There's no healthy water to drink. You're going to drink toxic water, whatever will come your way. And, And to the point where you become so attached, you can't detach. So healthy love, healthy relationships, healthy marriage is, of course, not just the antidote, that is the expression of healthy attachments. Ultimately, it all comes down to attachment with God because you're not attached to anything that's man-made or mortal. You're attached to something greater than you are, a creator. That's really the essence of Torah, Yiddishkeit, Chassidus, an interface between the human and the divine, total transcendence. That's the healthiest attachment. And that's why, indeed, yes, God is always used because even in uh, 12 steps or elsewhere, because you can't do it on your own. But it goes much deeper than that when you learn Chassidus because it is the ultimate relationship, the ultimate achdus echad and the ultimate av of ahavtas Hashem which we say right after Shema Yisrael Hashem Echad. So I, I go back to what um, Shesa Rabbi Taub said before. I do agree that we have, previous generations had things we don't have, but also we have things they don't have. Uh, I would just add one more thing into the equation. They also had oppression. They had what is called Nedochim Baretz Mitzrayim. They were downtrodden. They were afflicted, poverty, discriminated against. We have freedom. We have prosperity, relatively speaking. That usually creates apathy. So it's like the opposite of Kabbalah sale, and then you become consumed. So when someone worships their uh, substances or they're addicted to something, the, the antithesis of that is worshiping God. Kabbalah sale and attachment to the right thing, not to the wrong thing. So that's how I would phrase the faucet and the mop. And, and, I, and I totally concur that about giving people the motivation, well, and prior to that, the trust, to want to embrace it because at the end of the day, the lack of healthy attachments also creates distrust. So there's no way they're going to get attached to something that's beautiful. There's no trust there. And, and that's why very often, I mean, it's a very radical statement to make, but some people have to lose God before they find God, meaning they have to lose the wrong God, the false God. And they have to lose their false, even religion and the ritual and the cultural uh, almost addiction to religion to find the true religion, or we don't like even to use the word religion to find the true connection to, to God. I mean, I know I'm saying a mouthful is a lot here, but that's how I would frame it. And our and our comforts are both a blessing and can be a, a great challenge. Comforts create apathy. Comfort zones, no motivation. So no motivation, you're not going to really have Kabbalah sale. You'll, whatever serves your needs at that moment, and you have all the alternatives, and you know every channel, every convenience, distractions, and people are, you know, we're being inundated. 
our attention and our senses are overstimulated. So the only alternative to that is to create a very passionate uh, commitment. I used before, Bittel, Kabbalah Soil, Mesiris Nefesh, they're really synonymous to something that is healthy, and not just healthy, will allow you to be the best you can be. Right, somewhat yeah. how I would uh, frame it. That requires discomfort. And to, what yeah. you're really saying, getting to the, the faucet that is leaking or running, is that we don't know why we're here. The problem is not that we have problems. The problem is when I solve my problems, I still don't know what I'm doing here. It's a bottomless pit. I solve a problem and nothing gets better because I don't know why I'm here. Why did I have the problem? Why do I have to solve problems? Why? Now, in the olden days, only the great philosophers asked this question. and They got famous for it. <laughs> what is the purpose of life? Today, everybody is haunted by this question. It's, be, it's in the back of everybody's mind, the successful and the non-successful, the traumatized and the non. Why? For what? If we can't answer that question, we're not stopping the leak. So how do we answer that question? Well, Viktor Frankl had said that in order to do the how, we need to have the why. The big why. Long before Viktor Frankl, yeah. the Bible said it. Right. <laughs> when Frankl says it, by the way, he quotes Nietzsche. That's right. <laughs> okay. Well, they say Nietzsche said God is dead, and God said Nietzsche is dead. <laughs> yeah, the last And word. there are those who believe that when Nietzsche said God is dead, he wasn't celebrating, he was warning society that without God, you're in trouble. So he was actually... Uh, and he was also revealing that the God that he was exposed to was never alive in the first place, was uh, yeah. stillborn. So the question of why am I here? If you don't answer that question, you haven't gotten to first base. So answer, for, answer it for us, Rabbi Friedman. <laughs> I, I must say, the question of a wise person is half the answer. The question is... Is the answer. The journey to the answer. If you don't ask it, you're definitely... In it. But I don't want to... But it's so good to hear children asking it. By the way, Rabbi Taub said in his uh, 30 Letters, 30 Days, the answer is always in the question. The problem defined is half solved. What do you say? Prob the problem, defined, problem defined is, is half, half solved. solved. Did I say that? No. no she I think said, I said, I said, I said that. The answer, yeah, you you said, a problem defined is half solved? Once we could define what the problem, or once we can actually articulate the question well and understand the a question. A Hasidic expression, Yediyas Hamach Lechetzi Rufua, awareness of the problem is half the cure. Right. But it's right, right, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. why are we here? Oh, you're going to tell us? It's, first of all, <laughs> it is the best proof that there's a God. Why are we even asking that question? Why are we tortured by it? If I don't know why I'm here, I can't live. Why? What do you care? Who says there's a reason? There's no reason. Just enjoy. Can't. We need a reason. <laughs> because there is one. See, that's, we're not all crazy. The fact that we're looking for a purpose means that there is a purpose. Nobody is homesick if you never had a home. That's just pathology. We have a purpose, and we need to know what it is. So 
Where do you look? After COVID? <laughs> you know you're not going to look into politics. You know you're not going to look into science. You know you're not going to look into medicine. What's left? Where are you going to look for that answer? By definition, purpose means there was a purpose for you to be born. You can't have a purpose after you're born. You can't make up a purpose for a car after you build a car. The purpose has to precede the fact. So when you say, what is my purpose? I don't have a purpose. I am the purpose. But whose purpose? Obviously the creator. Like the story in the Gemara about the sage who saw a guy on the road that was very ugly and he said to him, you're so ugly. And he said, don't complain to me. Complain to my maker. And he wasn't so ugly after that. Because he recognized that there's a creator. I don't make myself ugly. I was made that way. Well, by the same token, I didn't make myself smart. I was created that way. So, purpose by definition means a creator who created you with a purpose. Otherwise, there is no purpose. So, you want to know the purpose? Who are you going to ask? <laughs> Go for it, Ida. <laughs> well, we need to, yeah, I mean, we're, what direction do we go with this question? Meaning, you're sending them to God? <laughs> you caught on, yeah. That's what I'm hinting at. <laughs> no, you wanted but, us to ask you what is up. But another, another way of saying it is, the leak is my neediness. I need. It's never going to end. But Inf you, we need a purpose. So that's a need. Ah, all my needs... Are, are the faucet running. And I fix one of them, I satisfy one need, another one pops up. It's endless, it's frustrating, and it's wrong. That's why it's killing us. We're not needy, but we are needed. Well, then the question is, needed by whom? So in the last years, the Rebbe kept emphasizing and repeating over and over and over, I don't exist for me, I exist to serve. Doesn't, isn't that what purpose means? I exist for a purpose, which means not just to be me, but to fulfill a purpose. Whose purpose? The one who created me. I was created with a purpose. That's why I feel it, I sense it, I need it. So I have only one need. One, not for food, not for water, not for wealth, not for security. All of that comes after the fact. Now that I exist, I need all those things. But why do I exist? The answer is to serve him. That makes me almost indestructible. If I'm here to serve him, what's going to bother me? What's going to threaten me? What's going to offend me? Almost nothing. I'm here to serve. So if I have a trauma, how do I serve with this trauma? If I have a gift, 
how do I serve with this gift? Rabbi Taub alluded to the, well, you kind of said that in the beginning, in the first answer, by taking on the approach that, well, it is the approach that Hashem gave this to us for a reason. Is that what you were saying? He gave, he gave the trauma to us. We were meant to have it. So Rabbi Friedman just said the reason. Right. Because usually when we say God gave it to you for a reason, oh, you mean to teach me a lesson? No, to punish you. <laughs> or to punish you? <laughs> to, to prepare me for Ilam Habor? To cleanse you. Right, right. No, for his purpose. It serves his purpose. You can serve him better with this trauma. Or maybe fixing this trauma is your service. Or you'll be able to help others because you know what this experience is. Always for someone else. If I'm, if I'm living for someone else, you can't scare me. You can't threaten me. You can't depress me. That is the ultimate answer. question is, how do we get there? So that's what we're talking about. You have to explain, you have to reveal, you have to, you can't demand. You it's can't. actually a freeing thought to think of, um, it's not about me, I'm not here for myself, I'm here for a higher purpose. Kind of, yeah, you can let go of. So this little anything. story, which is so amazing, I think it, it answers all the questions. A bacher went to yeshiva in France, from America. He comes, he arrives there, goes into the office, and Abnissen is sitting there. Abnissen was like, no, no nonsense. <laughs> you know, he didn't give an inch. He didn't know who Abnissen was. And he said to him, Ich darf rufen de Mamen. I need to call my mother. Abnissen said, whoa, whoa. Ich darf? What does that mean? The boy thought maybe he didn't understand me. I need to call my mother. But the Mishnah said again, Ich darf. So he said, My mother needs me to call her. Which phone can I use? So the Mishnah said, Oh, stop lying. When you said you need to call your mother, you're lying. It's not true. A teenage boy on an adventure in France doesn't need to call his mother. I mean, we discussed this on our podcast. I kind of felt like I was hoping the boy actually missed his mother. Huh? <laughs> I was hoping that the boy actually did want need to speak to his mother and he missed her. No, he didn't <laughs> miss her. But he knew that she was waiting for a phone call and that was his motivation. So the Nissan says to him, your mother has a need and you claim it as yours? It's not honest. And it's not true. So if you need to call your mother, you're a big boy, go find the telephone. Why should anybody help you? But if it's your mother and you're doing what your mother needs, everybody will help you. Because now you're doing something special, something noble. The same is true with everything in life. I need Parnassa. <laughs> you need Parnassa? Who created a world where Who arranged this whole thing that for a human being to have what to eat, he has to go to school, get a job, pay bills? What kind of ridiculous notion is this? You created that? This is your need? 
It's not. Stop lying. Don't make yourself the needy one when you're not. This is God's creation. And every detail is God's creation. So the person should say, I need to make a parnasa to serve God. God needs me to make parnasa. And I don't know why. <laughs> Got to figure it out. God needs me to eat in order to live. Why? It's embarrassing. Humiliating. I got to stop whatever I'm doing, as important as it is, because I got to eat. Who did this to me? Most of the time, I don't want it. I don't want the need. I like eating. I don't like the need to eat. So it's my need. It's like saying, your need, what are you, God? You need to call your mother. You're not your mother. Don't take your mother's need, which is serious, something you should respect, and turn it into your need. Yeah, it's interesting because if you think about, you know, business gurus and people who um, are like business coaches and advisors, people will come to them and they'll say, well, it's not about you. It's about your customer. Think about your customer. That's what marketing is all about. You want to build a successful business. It's not about you. Um, you have to be able to just fill their need and uh, go through the discomfort and all of these things that are, it's, are so much easier to, to do for some reason because we're in a career-driven society. So how do we just get into this mindset of it's kind of the same thing. We want to build a successful life. It is, in fact, more pleasant and more enjoyable to do for someone else. Why do we deny that? Right. Why do we keep tell being told, take care of yourself, cater to yourself? Do it's boring. It's narcissistic. It's a dead end. That's what the Rebbe meant. For my interest, as far as I'm concerned, Leave me alone. Don't create me. Don't give me needs. Don't give me challenges. I don't need any of this. For me, Ella, why do I exist? I'm here to serve. It is so liberating. And that's what the children are saying when they say, I didn't ask to be born. It means I don't need to be born. Well, if I don't need to be born, what am I doing here? Make the best of it? No. Not willing to settle for that.